0: Welcome, everyone. Whether you're listening from somewhere in this world or the next, this planet or another, we're glad you're here to join us as we explore unexplainable truths. I'm your host, Wendy Jaglarski. I'm really excited to welcome back bestselling author and abductee Terry Lovelace for part two of his interview with us. For those of you who don't know him, Terry is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and has an undergrad in psychology and a law degree from Western Michigan. He served as Assistant Attorney General both in Vermont and American Samoa until he retired in 2012. Today, he's going to be sharing with us an incredible story. Back in 2012, a routine x-ray of his leg found an anomalous bit of metal the size of a fingernail with two tiny wires attached. What followed were horrific nightmares and intrusive thoughts all surrounding a 1977 camping trip he took with a friend and fellow airman to Devil's Den State Park. This event has changed his life forever, and I'm really looking forward to hearing part two of his story. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Terry Lovelace back to the show. Hey, Terry.
1: Hi, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Yes, I have been very anxiously awaiting this part two of your story. I think we left off uh, with you needing to tell us about what ended up ultimately happening with Toby, uh, some more about your experience of what took place on the, on the UFO, and some of your hypnosis. Um, I know you have some new things going on. You have a, an updated book out as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Awesome. And that's yes. uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning?
1: Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Uh, it's number one in new releases on Kindle, and uh, awesome. it's been very well received. I'm happy to say. And, Congratulations! Uh, I think it on answers that. a lot of questions. Thank you. I think it answers a lot of questions that were left hanging in the uh, incident at Devil's Den, uh, and moreover, I—I I may have mentioned this last time, but just to bring everybody up to speed, in the back of uh, in the epilogue of Incident at Devil's Den. I gave a email, an email address and said, look, you know, I'm not a doctor a therapist or uh, really an official researcher, at least back then. But if you've had a, an experience that's significant in your life that involves extraterrestrials, UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, I don't care, and you want to share it with me, uh, contact me. And I've had o- over 1,400 people contact me. Oh, wow. Uh, so I took a core there's a core group of about, uh, not that I judged the, the, the veracity of anyone's story, but I took a, a core group of about 400 of those that were really absolutely incredible stories and uh, distilled them down to the very best 50. And then from that 50, I chose 30 uh, that I vetted to the best of my ability. I spoke with the people. I kind of verified some facts that they gave me. And uh, I came, ended up with 30 really cool stories, and th- those are included in the reckoning.
0: Awesome! I can't yeah. wait to to catch up on that on that updated version. So I will oh, could, hand r- it over to you. We, you off? Could, we left sure. off. You had talked about your you had you were giving given some truth serum, and they told you you know. They thought you had some film role. Um, you briefly said, you know, that some other things had happened with Toby, but you didn't get into any of that. And then I had asked a couple questions about what took place while you were on the ship. And, you know, we decided to save that for part two.
1: This is some of the most amazing stuff. Um, this is the stuff that's fresh in my mind because it's haunted my sleep for 40 years. Um, what happened is, uh, you know, we, we went to bed somewhere around 10 p.m. And uh, both of our watches, we had wind-up mechanical watches, had stopped at 2.40. I, you know, so I'm guessing at times here, I think it was around 4 a.m. that we woke up. And uh, the ship that we had saw was like 30 feet over our heads. It's the size of a Super Walmart. Uh, and we were both, I was panicked. Toby was sobbing. We were hiding in this tent like, like two scared little kids, and, uh, which we were, and um, afraid that they were going to come come get us. We didn't know at that time that they were actually done with us. Uh, but Toby made the, I made the remark to Toby because I could see little beings in the distance walking around. And I was confused at first, and I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere? And that's when he said, Terry, man, ain't no little kids. Look at them close. They're not human beings. They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, uh, I snapped out of that uh, weird, disinterested, apathetic kind of uh, odd place that I think that comes from their influence. They have, they, they have more influence on us than I think that we recognize or give them credit for. And at that moment, I had flashes of memory from being inside of this ship Um, that, but only a few. And then when the OSI interrogated me, uh, this is about eight weeks after the event at OSI headquarters, I was uh, in the custody of two uh, OSI special agents and taken into an interrogation room. And uh, there was a third party there, a major Big, tall, sandy-haired, uh, barrel-chested guy with no name tag, uh, but oak leaves on his collar. And he, he carried himself more like a, like a priest or a therapist than a military officer. And uh, he shook my hand, and he said, Sergeant Lovelace, it's so nice to meet you. And I was, like, taken aback by that. And I shook his hand, and I said, yes, sir, it's nice to meet you. And he pulls up a chair right next to me, invading my personal space. And he says, um, Terry, I understand you and Toby went on a little camping trip. My, that must have been exciting. And I said, it was. And he says, Terry, for purposes of today's little exercise, would you please call me Brad instead of Major Brownfield? That is my name. And I said, Sure, yes, sir. And he says, "Ah, ah, ah." Don't you mean yes, Brad? <sighs> and I said, "Yes, Brad." And I thought, that's creepy, you know. Yeah. And then he follows up and says, "For the purposes of today's little exercise, may I just call you Terry, since that is your name?" And I said, "Sure." And it, uh we engage in some little chit chat back and forth, and he asked me about St. Louis and rattles off some landmarks. And, uh, I know he's trying to make me at ease. I mean, I, I can sense that. And I think that that, that put me more, that did the opposite. That made me more uncomfortable because I could see the object of his exercise. And, uh, uh, I think he shifted gears then and asked me this weird question. He says, Terry, do you trust me? And, you know, I, I, I won't say on the air what I wanted to tell him, but I did the civil and, uh, you know, polite thing. And I said, yes, Brad, I trust you. Um, And he said, good, that's very good. And then uh, he said, well, we're going to hypnotize you today to help you focus on some of the things that happened to you while you were at Devil's Den. And you'll be able to see them clearly and you won't be afraid. I'll be right here with you. And what you're seeing is not real. It's only images in your mind. Do you understand? And I said, yes, Brad, I understand. At this point, I'd been taking psychology classes in the evening division, uh, the extension university that was on campus. Uh, So, you know, I, I understood that I couldn't be hypnotized against my will. And I made the decision that I would resist the hypnosis as much as I could. I knew I couldn't resist the drug, but I could resist the hypnosis. And I did to the best of my ability. I tried to bifurcate my mind. and I I decided I'm not going to give this guy my entire consciousness. I'm going to reserve part of it. And uh, I did. I, I tried to answer his questions. And uh, in the other half of my mind, I did multiplication tables, I listened to Beatle music, I went through the lyrics, I kept myself occupied, um, and I think that helped somewhat, but the drug was like, bam, and I was I was in twilight, so the classification of the drug is called a hypnotic, and, and there's a very good reason for that. Uh, the name of the drug is sodium amytal, and it was very commonly widely used by the OSI investigating this type of matter, anything involving a UFO. Because mm. um, I remember thinking, you know, surely they can't do this to everybody that witnesses a UFO because, you know, a lot of people do. Uh, but I think it's reserved for those that have a more intimate, in, pardon me, intimate encounter like Toby and I had. Okay. Well, so he gave me the medication. He took me back on a, on a, on a hypnotic regression, typical, you know, Terry, we're going to walk down some stairs, uh, relax your body, relax your mind. And he had this real smooth voice, like a radio announcer, you know, and he took me through this progressive relaxation exercise. And um, what I tried to do was, covertly at least, I'm in this relaxed position in the chair, but I, so if he said, you know, relax your arms, I tried to covertly tense them while looking relaxed, which sounds contradictory, but if, if you try, I guess you can do it successfully. I think I did. So, um, but like I say, the drug took me to a different place and, uh, what I saw in my mind's eye, um, was incredible because it, it it made sense because it was similar to the nightmares that I'd been having. Uh, but this, this was, these were new scenarios Uh, and I'm going to jump right in to of the half dozen that I had the most frightening and the most frightening thing that I saw was, was the story. That Toby and I, I was standing in, inside of this ship. I don't know how I got there. Uh, I was asleep and then somehow tr- transited to this, to this ship. And I immediately opened my eyes and I was in the ship. I could perceive that Toby was next to me, but I couldn't turn my head. Uh, very much like Calvin Parker, uh, all I could do was move my eyes. And I, my eyes are darting around and I'm just trying to drink in my environment. And my heart's about to jump out of my chest because uh, I'm in such a bizarre place. I'm in like an atrium of this humongous building. Now, I described the craft that we saw as being the size of a medical building or a super Walmart. I'm not sure if I was inside that craft because it doesn't make sense. The craft that I was in was much larger on the inside than was than the thing that I was at. I don't know if they operate under some kind of different kind of physics or if they maybe took us someplace else. I don't know. But I know that I was in this place that was the size of a football stadium. It was so big I could barely see uh, figures at the end, at the far end of where we were standing. And I have no clue what was in back of me. Uh, But there there was – where we were at, it was open – up above, like a mezzanine. I mean, I could see uh, walkways spiraling around the periphery, the walls of, of the building, um, and there were a set of huge garage-like doors on my left. And there were, I saw three saucers parked. I mean, they were lined up like like airplanes under a carrier deck. I saw everything in the everything inside was either like a porcelain white or stainless steel. The floor seemed grayish. Uh, and there was an incredible amount of light. I mean, it was like the light was so bright that it hurt your eyes. And, and sure enough, we ended up with what's called flash burns, the burns to the cornea of your eye that an arc welder would get if they didn't wear that hood over their head. Mm, okay. And I saw the little gray guys, the ubiquitous grays, as they call them, which I think are robots. I don't think they're sentient like you and I, you and me.
0: Really? They're running okay. around
1: all over the place. And uh, I, saw, I saw this guy to my left, and I'm straining my eyes to the left to look at him because he stands out. He's different. He's twice as tall as the grays. He's maybe a little over six foot, just a tad taller than I am. His complexion is chalkish pink in color he is not gray he's humanoid in his features uh except for his head uh and his fingers were i only saw four now there may have been a fifth digit hidden behind but i saw four prominent digits um and they were much longer than our fingers and i saw uh, as far as his facial features go he uh like I said, he looked humanoid, but there was no cartilage for a nose. It was just two two holes for nostrils. Same with his ears. There was no no uh, external ear, just just a uh, a hole, and um, just a slip for a mouth. Never heard him speak. Never saw him open his mouth. His eyes were uh, black, like that, uh, like gloss black paint. They were they were. I, I don't know if those were some kind of eye covering or if those were his actual eyes. I think they were his eyes, but you know, that's an assumption on my part. I don't know. Very sparse hair on top of his head. And, uh, what, what he did was he was, Oh, I also saw he was he was close enough that I could see he was wearing a garment of some kind. He wore like a gray, like a pullover, like a knit, like almost like a sweater with a V neck I didn't see any kind of uh, name tag or insignia of rank or any type of decorative ornamental uh, jewelry, anything of that sort.
0: Uh,
1: But he was obviously, he carried himself with authority. I mean, when he's walking around, you could tell this guy's in charge. So I had my eyes strained as far to the left as I can. And just by happenstance, he turns his head toward me and we locked eyes. And in that moment, uh, I don't know how be- I don't know how better else to tell you than he was in my head. I mean, I could sense this guy in my head,
0: and, and he knew. It all crazy. Did.
1: Oh, it was it was it was incredible. It was uh, frightening. It was an invasion of privacy that was off the scale. I mean, in an instant, he knew me. He knew my family. He knew my childhood. He knew my secrets. He knew everything about me and reflected back from those eyes, all I saw was raw intellect. And I, I, the best description I can give you is this, I, because it's it's so appropriate. When, when our kids were little, uh, we had a dog, we had an English setter, and she would come over and put her head in my lap, and I'd pet her on top of the head, you know, while I'm watching TV or something. And you know, and then she'd want some affection and I'd rub her ears and she'd look up at me with those huge brown eyes. and, And I could see in those eyes that love and trust. And, uh, I could also see that, you know, she understood our respective roles. In other words, I was the alpha and she knew that we each knew our roles. And, um, you know, she knew somehow that, uh, She was, I don't want to say lesser, because I'm not valuing her worth, but the less intelligent of the two. And when I saw this guy in locked eyes, I felt like the dog in that equation. And that was so frightening, was the realization that here's this living sentient being that's 500 runs above the evolutionary ladder than I am. And, uh, I mean, I felt like I might as well be, you know, something in a Petri dish you know, that, that he was looking at. I felt that inadequate.
0: It was did,
1: incredibly humbling, scary.
0: Did uh, Since he was in your head, did you also have the sense that you were in his head as well? Or
1: No, I didn't get that sense. But what I did okay. get, I'm glad you asked that because I left that out. What I did get reflected back from those eyes was a, um, um, a feeling of, uh, I got the impression that he was the alpha, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was the dog. And what I saw in those eyes was raw intellect. Just, I mean, not an ounce of empathy, mercy, love, um, just all business. And, um, you know, I, 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 think that's what scares me so much is that drives home the point that we're not top dog. We're not at the top of the food chain anymore. We are, mm-hmm. we are one of uh, God knows how many out there in the universe. So nothing special about us, nothing superior about us. Right, and that's, that's the part that haunts my sleep. I, I typical nightmare is I'm straining the eyes, we lock eyes, and then I wake up screaming. So uh, fortunately, I have maybe one or two of those a year. Uh, but that's the worst. The other memories that I have was that uh, when I was standing there inside the ship, uh, I I was nude. They'd they'd undressed us, which is why when I was in the tent, I discovered my shoes unlaced and my socks were on sideways. Um, I was holding my clothing in my hand, my boots, my clothing, folded up, kind of, in front of me um, with my two arms, holding them in front of my chest. And I could perceive Toby to my left, but I couldn't see him clearly. And I assumed that he was likewise situated. And, um, the, um, we heard a woman scream and, you know, there's all kinds of characters, uh, characteristics of a scream. I mean, somebody you know jump out and yell boo at somebody and they'll react and go, ah, you know, but then there's, there's, um, a scream associated with pain and it's that sharp piercing, um, uh, scream. That's uh, a pain response. And that's what this woman sounded like. She sounded like she was hurting. And uh, I, I mean, I was terrified at that point anyway. I mean, and I hear this and my heart's about to jump out of my chest really. And I, I knew that it was going to be my turn sometime. Well, they took Toby first. Uh, I don't remember them taking him, but I could perceive that he wasn't there. And I, I heard a man scream. I didn't recognize this voice from the screen, but I recognized he said, oh, my God, no, oh, my God, no, please, no. And then another scream, and I clearly recognized that it was Toby. Aww. And I don't know what they were doing to him. Um, but then um, Toby didn't come back, uh, but four grays came to get me. And strange, they, they grabbed two. I had one on each arm on the side. And they walked me um, toward this uh, walkway on the side of the, um, of the craft. And there was a hallway. We went through a doorway and there was this long hallway. So the size of this thing had to be much greater than what I was even able to perceive with my limited sight. You know, with my vision being locked. And uh, we went down a hallway and to my right there were a series of glass tanks and they varied in size from about, you know, a standard small aquarium all the way up to um, tubes at the very end of the hallway that were large enough to accommodate a human being and all sizes in between uh, with the, the square ones uh, taking up the majority of the space. Um, and inside some of these tanks, there was a pink fluid of some kind and the only, again, I, my line of sight is visible or limited, rather, and I have my eyes strayed as far to the right as I can. And I saw what I took to be a puppy. Um, you know how a newborn puppy has those folds of skin all over it? Yeah, and, uh, yes. It had that new puppy uh, kind of look to it. It had the folds of skin, and I... Uh, I I didn't perceive it as being particularly much scarier than anything else I was looking at. And I could see an umbilical cord floating in the water. And uh, it was suspended in this water, uh, kind of in a fetal position in the middle of the tank. But as I walked by, um, it opened its right eye, which would have been closest to me. And when it opened its eyes, I, I, I thought I was going to pass out. It opened its eye, and uh, I could see a large eye, um, unlike the grays and unlike the pink guy that I that I spent time with. There was actually a sclera, an iris, a pupil, um, and the the um, the pupil was not round like ours. It was almost cat-like. Uh, and that it was uh, like a vertical oval, like a, like uh, some cats have, mm-hmm. and uh, wow. that absolutely terrified me. And that's another uh, common nightmare that I experience. It's just that instant of that eye opening.
0: Yeah, I can't uh, imagine. That I think- sounds like a like a scary movie.
1: Oh, it was. it was. That's exactly what it was. It's a scary movie that replays over in my head. Uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTSD twice. Um, I've never explained to any therapist or doctor what I experienced because I uh, I thought that they would, uh, you know, dismiss my story and immediately assume I was delusional. But both times I took a uh, – and then – Uh, PI Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it. It's like 500 questions. They're all yes or no questions Um, and they um, The test has been around 75 years and it's it's a diagnostic tool psychologists use um, to make a diagnosis so both times I came back without any major psychopathy of any kind but Uh, Both times I came back with a diagnosis of PTSD, etiology unknown, and part of the symptoms of my PTSD, uh, which is typical for survivors, which I consider myself one, is that they have, um, I I called them intrusive thoughts um, before I had the MMPI. They explained to me that those are actually flashbacks, you know, you're you're seeing bits and pieces float up from your subconscious, uh, and flash across your conscious mind. And I have no control over when those will come up. I might be shopping. I might be talking to my wife, watching TV. And then suddenly I have no control over it. Those will flash in front of my face. My heart rate will spike. And, uh, it lasts just a second, but I'll see these images, uh, in my mind. And, uh, those are the PTSD-type effects. So uh, let me go back to my walk down the hallway. Um, I uh I digress here. They took, us, took me down this long hallway, and I, I'm not walking. I'm gliding. I'm gliding along. My legs my, – my whole body is frozen. My legs are frozen. I'm gliding along this walkway, which is a strange sensation. Uh, as far as movement goes, it was um, kind of like being on one of those – one of those uh, walkways at the airport where you stand on like a belt and it moves you, uh, except with this, the floor was static. It didn't move, but I moved. I glided along on, on my two feet, my bare two feet. was uh, a really strange sensation. And we got to the end of the hall where there were, thankfully, those empty tubes that were large enough to accommodate a human being. And went through a doorway. And inside this doorway, there was a, you can only call it an exam room. Um, There was a, uh, and again, like everything else in the ship, it was insanely brightly lit. There was an exam table in the middle of the room that looked porcelain. And um, one of the greys took my clothing from me. And somehow, they didn't physically manipulate me. Somehow I was tilted uh, horizontal to the floor, you know, parallel to the floor, and put on this exam table, which was maybe, maybe four feet high. And I could see instruments, stainless steel-looking instruments. Uh, they were either hanging from the ceiling, suspended somehow, or floating in air. I don't know which, because the lighting was so intense that... If there was some kind of cord, I couldn't see it.
0: And was the light coming from fixtures or was it just simply emanating from everywhere?
1: Never saw a light fixture of any kind. The light seemed to come from every surface, every wall. uh, But it was obviously way more intense in some places than in others. So I assumed at the time that, you know, the light was just so bright that I couldn't see the wall fixture. And that may be the case, but I don't think so. Uh, You know, I intuit that it just the so way it was that's the way it was made it was just emanating from uh the surface the walls oh. and i i want to stress here that despite all the terror of getting into the room and despite the terror of hearing my friend and this unidentified woman screaming this uh, had a clinical feel to it uh, a medical vibe it I didn't think that I was scared at that, but I didn't think I was going into an intentional torture session. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't there for their amusement. I was there for their study.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, there were an unknown number, maybe six of the greys standing around assisting. And uh, there was this, now you would think this would be the most frightening thing I saw, but it wasn't. There was an insectoid thing there, uh, and I know you've heard of them. They look like praying mantis with a triangular-shaped head, and it was green, uh, although not brilliant green, but it was green in color, and it had these very large, maybe six, eight inches in diameter, eyes on either side of this triangular-shaped head, and it had insect, uh, insect-like um, mouth parts, uh, and it never spoke, obviously. And what's crazy is every time I picture this guy, I see him or her in a white lab coat. Now, now that's silly because I, I know that this being wasn't wearing a white lab coat. I mean I, I suspect that he wasn't wearing a white lab coat. I suspect that that's the image that he chose to project, he or she chose to project to me to reinforce in my mind the thought, yeah, that this hey, this is a medical this is a medical thing. This is not you know, we're not here to hurt you, at least. Uh, uh, but he did, and uh, I'll get to that in a second. I, uh, you know, I was very angry afterward uh, for years, but you know, my position has softened somewhat over the years, and uh, I rarely, if ever, now have a have a nightmare about this guy. But um, you know, I, I no longer have that anger. Um, because I, and, you know, maybe that's just my way of processing and dealing with it. I don't know, but I really think that if I could sit down with this entity that I refer to as Dr. Bug, that, uh, if we could sit down and, and, you know, have a beer, have a cup of coffee or something that, uh, he would tell me, you know, Hey, no hard feelings, just, uh, doing my job, man, you know, um. The point is, I don't feel malice uh, anymore. Uh, certainly not benign, but but not as far as malice. So I, I watching him now I'm i I'm, I'm on this table. I remember being absolutely shocked that uh, my bare body on this what I what looked like porcelain to me, the table didn't feel cold at all. It felt um, it felt warm. And then I realized that yeah, it's warm because there've been a series of human bodies on this table before me. Probably, I'm sure. I don't think they warmed it for my comfort. Um, and that was a frightening revelation. And uh, I, uh, while I'm while I'm laying there, um, I I can't. All I can move is my eyes, so I don't have a clear view of what's going on at my feet. But they're doing something to my lower back. And it hurt a lot. I mean, I felt uh, I felt a sharp sensation of uh, like like they had cut me. Now, you know, I want to be clear. After this, never a scar, never any kind of trace that my back was messed with. Uh-huh. But by age forty, I was diagnosed with uh, degenerative uh, spine disease. And uh, you know, I have a lot of lower back issues. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not debilitating. Um, but the pain is there it's an arthritic type pain and I and I I associate that with what they did to me that day uh, but again I think it was collateral damage I don't think it was intentionally inflicted I think it was uh, unintentional
0: have you ever wondered since they're so technologically advanced and they can easily abduct people and put them into trances and such why don't they ever prevent it from hurting do you have an opinion you know, on I, I Russell
1: yeah, I, I can. I wrestle with that a lot, and you know, I, uh, I, uh, I have friends that are that are medical doctors, and uh, I, I've discussed that with them. And and I didn't know that. You know, there's a class of medication in that hypnotic range um, that are called, like Versed, is the name of the drug that uh, they can give you, and Versed has. A amnesia effect to it. So while you may not feel the physical pain, you go through the uh, the uh, the discomfort, I'll call it, of maybe having to realign a bone or do something to your physical body um, that's that's frightening and not a not a pleasant situation. Uh, but as a side effect of the medication, you'll not remember it. So you'll have no memory of it. And my guess is, is that, um, and I think I even mentioned this in my book, is that I think that they believe that from an ethical standpoint, if you do something to someone and yet erase the memory of it, then is, is it okay? Does that make it ethical? You know, if you hurt someone, but you take away all memory of it, does that then somehow make it justifiable? And, uh, I say the answer is no. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know that we anesthetize animals on the Serengeti plain, you know, with, uh, with, um, you know, tranquilizer guns and the like. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I mean, we'll never know if the animal has, uh, after effects and, uh, Maybe somehow conscious memory has um, has been uh, harmed or traumatized, uh, right. but I think that's the issue. I think that from their set of ethics, they see that as as um, justifiable way to get down to business oh yeah so i i I'm back on the table and I'm experiencing this pain and it's, it's excruciating and I'm, I'm, I'm screaming. Now I, I can't open my mouth and scream like I would like to, uh, but I know that I'm making noise and I, I, again, I'm on my back. So, but I can feel my chest expanding and I am screaming as loud as I can. But I can't hear anything. I can hear nothing. I am. Comp- it's like somebody hit the mute button. Uh, And that confused me and I'm thinking, how can this be? Uh, I know I'm making noise. And at one point, uh, this Dr. Bug turns its head toward me. Now, because it's seven foot tall, even though I'm on my back, I have a pretty good view of him or her. And again, in this white lab coat and they had, really bizarre arms, insectoid-like arms, in that there were not only the digits on their hand, there were digits on the forearm. So this guy is manipulating multiple stainless steel objects while this is going on. And uh, it turns its head in my direction and leans over so that I'm seeing what would have been his left eye looking directly in my eyes. And I heard him with crystal clarity in my head. And what's crazy is I heard him. He had no suitable, uh dialect or uh, accent of any kind. I just heard the information, but I heard it audibly in my head. And he said to me, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know we don't hurt you. You know we take you back. Now stop screaming. Wow. And he touched me on top of the head, and I was out. That was That was the final... Um, that was the final uh, interaction that I had. While I now
0: share. that comment would seem to allude of them having done this to you before.
1: Yes. I think that that was a reassurance. Uh, and I
0: also think that,
1: you know, I got this vibe that I was frustrating him uh, because I was screaming that my, um, somehow my screaming was, uh, you know, interrupting his, ability to concentrate or something. Now I've had a lot of people come back and say, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. These things have no emotions. How could you annoy him? Well, I'll tell you, um, I can be pretty annoying if I put my mind to it. So, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to me. So, um, you know, I discount that. I think that that, no, I, I know for sure that I had, I had, uh, I was on this guy's last nerve and, uh, um, but it's a good question why they, I, I know they have the technology to, uh, put me into a sleep or, uh, you know, I don't know. And I've wrestled with the question, was that intentional? You know, were they counting on me at some point, this filtering back into my conscious mind and, uh, and being a memory? Of course, I didn't know I was going to be hypnotized, which is are uh, given a drug, truth serum, whatever you want to call it. And I think that that's what really uh, brought these images and all this stuff to the surface. Uh, And, you know, I think that's a very good thing. Uh, I think that there, there are a lot of people out there that had similar experiences, but they lack a memory. They, they can't, you know, it's so suppressed with a screen memory or, or been wiped from your mind that, uh, that there's no record of it. So, all they have is this uh, subconscious vague anxiety. And I think that that's truly unhealthy. And that may be of what, what had happened to my friend Toby uh, was that he, uh, you know, he had all the horror and stuff, but he couldn't tie it to an actual interaction with these things. And uh, if, if you don't get it out of your subconscious and into your conscious memory where you can process it, I think that's the real danger is that uh, when it manifests in unhealthy ways, uh, like it did for my friend, and I'll tell you his story in just a moment, but, you know, manifest as, you know, uh, personality disorders, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, you know, everyone has a way to cope with this. uh, I admit that I I had my struggles immediately after this, and and I I stayed as much in my book that You know, immediately thereafter, um, when the nightmare started, uh, about 30, 45 days after the event, that I I had no desire to drink during the day. But the idea of going to sleep at night scared me to death because at night we're unconscious and we have no control over our thoughts. And um, I was I was very afraid that these things would come back and visit me, um, in my sleep. And, and they do on occasion, but for that reason, you know, before bed, I'd have a glass of wine, but then a glass of wine became two, and then a glass of wine became three. Unfortunately, I recognized, um, you know, and my, as my wife pointed out, you know, look, this is unhealthy and, uh, you know, you're developing a tolerance to this. And, uh, I recognized that and I stopped. Um, and then in the, in the 90s uh, and the 80s, really, there was uh, easily available uh, a class of drugs called benzodiazepines. You know, Valium, clonopin, there's, I could give you a dozen examples, but you guys know that you, you guys get the idea. Um, and those had a wonderful effect in that they would, um, you know, put me at ease, relaxed, and allow me to sleep. But unfortunately, um, they're not benign. I mean, they are not, you know, there's a price for everything. Your body develops a tolerance for the drug. And, uh, you know, then you have the compulsion to take two to get the same result. Mm -hmm. So I realized that's a slippery slope too. I, I didn't want to be there. So finally, um, I settled on one 25-milligram capsule of uh, diphenhydramine, Benadryl. It's an antihistamine. It's not a a benzo, not an opiate, just uh, it makes you sleepy. It's a side effect. And uh, I take one capsule of uh, Benadryl at night. It's, you know, standard dose for uh, allergies, and that helps me sleep. Uh, So, but nighttime is still still frightening to me, you know, I have to sleep with, you know, it's a ritual. I have to sleep with the uh, drapes drawn. The door has to be open. Um, I usually always sleep with headphones. I have since the Walkman days back in the day. Now, of course, I use a a shielded uh, iPhone in the breast pocket of my t-shirt with earbuds. And I listen to, um, you know, 432 Hertz uh, tones, meditative apps, um, those type of things, and it drowns out the ambient noises from the house that freak me out so bad. Um, so yeah, I have these PTSD-like symptoms. I may have mentioned last time that I, I you know, I can't walk, I can't cut across an open field and be out in the open. The yeah. idea of that makes me feel vulnerable. Yeah. So that's just, uh, just yeah. part of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine.
1: But, you know, I, I can't say that it, it has, uh, I mean, I, I've adapted, I've learned to cope. It hasn't, uh, you know, uh, ruined my life in any way, not at all. It's uh, something you learn to live with. I mean, lots of people out there have, been, have PTSD worse than I have from combat, from trauma of all kinds. And uh, it's just a human condition that we have to, we have to learn to live with. Well, that's the way I feel. And then after, the, um, after this uh, session with Dr. Buck, he tapped me on the forehead and I went out. And by the way, I've had other people tell me that they had a similar experience. In these 1,400 emails that I had, I had a lot of people that claimed to be, and I'm not judging the veracity of anybody's story. They sounded very credible to me. Well, a lot of them, did, and some, some a little less than others. But tell me that when they were in... Um, similarly situated that the tap on the forehead sent them into unconsciousness. Now I I woke up, um, near my car, but I'm not fully conscious. I'm kind of like in twilight land. And, uh, I remember having the thought, Oh, well, somebody screwed up. They should have put us back in the tent. And I, I swear the second I had that thought, there were four little gray guys there. And, um, they were very strong and they picked us up they dragged us to the tent and threw us in and then i was unconscious again and then i stayed unconscious until that light show that penetrated the canvas of the tent and woke me up um and that's a that's a fuzzy memory I, and i think that that's a genuine memory i don't think that's a false memory you know i was talking about these gray guys i i really truly believe i i refer to them in my book as worker bees and i think that there's some kind of combination maybe like quantum uh computing uh, ai uh nanotechnology maybe some biological material in there for good measure but they 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 seem more mechanical robotic or they don't they don't seem alive you know like i they 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 lack some kind of quality um I've heard the term used that they're soulless and uh, I think that's probably accurate. You know, they're soulless as my computer.
0: Um,
1: I don't know. I I don't know. That's a good question. Do they have the ability to to make an entity that has a soul that has a, that is self-aware and conscious? Uh, I don't know. You know, some people, uh, Daryl Sims, um, we may have heard of or may be familiar with. Uh, Daryl Sims um, was a um, with Dr. Roger Lear uh, when he did his work on implants before he passed away in 2014. And uh, Daryl has a great deal of experience working with people um, like myself, including me. And um, he told me that... uh, Uh, You know, based on his research, that uh, he had more than one person tell him that during their abduction, on this one woman's memory was very clear, and she's a credible lady, according to Daryl, and uh, she said while she was in ET's custody that they um, she was on an exam table, and they showed her above her body a holographic image of her body, and. They communicated to her telepathically that they wanted her to show them where the where the soul resides, and where consciousness, where is the seat of consciousness in the human body? And um, as far as the soul, uh, of course, she had no answer. Uh, consciousness, she pointed to the head, uh, but they weren't satisfied with that with the answer. Uh, and were, you know didn't believe her or or thought that she was wrong. So, um, but you know, that matches, there's a lot of research on consciousness, consciousness now, you know, Ray Hernandez uh, and a lot of very credible people uh, have come out and said that, uh, you know, consciousness, the whole non-duality thing of consciousness, they, they don't believe that, um, the seat of consciousness is rooted with within the uh, human mind, that it resides perhaps somewhere outside the mind. Um, Dr. Edgar Mitchell uh, has the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation. Uh, it's the foundation for research into extraterrestrial extraordinary experiences. And it's if you put them together, it forms the acronym FREE, F-R-E-E. And it's a 501c3 uh, academic research institute. 501c3 just refers to the tax code. It's a nonprofit organization. Okay. And um, Ray has written, compiled a book. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't write it, uh, all of it. Uh, but he compiled, he wrote some of it, but compiled a lot of information. And uh, volume one is called uh, Beyond UFOs, The Science of Consciousness and Contact with Non-Human Intelligence volume one, Volume one's about 800 pages and it's, um, it's an incredible read and it talks about the issue of, of consciousness. And um, that's going to be that, 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 you know, that's the new frontier for, for humanity to investigate because uh, I didn't know this, but neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, um, even Alexander, the NDE, uh, experiencer uh, yeah who That's- who's he, you know he was an expert on the human brain, and uh he explains that the human brain has been mapped uh, for many years, just like the genome has been decoded and there's there's no way to identify the neurosurgeons can't find where consciousness resides within the brain um You know, they can they can map all the other things, all the other sensory things that go into our our experiences and uh, um, in life, but uh, they can't find that. So um, some people think that that maybe, uh, you know, consciousness resides outside the body, uh, but maybe accompanies it, you know, like this cloud of things that's outside of our ability to perceive um, which explains why, uh, uh, I got, I got a lot of letters from people that were emails and letters from people that were NDE experiencers who speak about, uh, and if you read the, Dr. Eben Alexander's famous, uh, he wrote two books, but if you read about his experiences, uh, he, this guy was a neurosurgeon. I mean, he knew the brain was his, uh, that's what he did. He taught neurosurgery for Harvard. At Harvard, um, and uh, he was. He said that he his malady was uh, meningitis. He had bacterial meningitis of the brain, uh, and he said that his brain was quote uh, swimming in pus from the infection, uh, and his brain was non-functional. Uh, he was given a two percent chance of survival, and he said from a scientific neurological standpoint, he should have absolutely been absent of any kind of um, thought or experience whatsoever. But his NDE experience was more real to him than the physical material world that you and I exist in. Uh, he said this was a whole other um, realm of existence. And uh, right. he had an interesting, um, he was an adopted child. and. Um, During his NDE experience, he met a beautiful young blonde woman. And after his experience, he established contact with his birth parents who were still alive and arranged, eventually arranged a meeting. Uh, And when they did, he was introduced to a photograph that he immediately recognized was the same woman. It was his biological sister. Who had predeceased him in an automobile accident.
0: Yeah. So yes.
1: uh, he had no way of knowing that. Uh, but he met her. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot more to consciousness and the world that we see. And, uh, you know, I think ET is way above us, and there are way to, ways to manipulate we're limited to Newtonian physics, pretty much. I mean, quantum physics has only been around 120 years, maybe. So this is, this is a new world for us. And, uh, uh, but it's exciting too. Absolutely. So, and, and I'm sorry, I digress from the,
0: no, from I love, but uh, I think absolutely. that's important to touch on. So,
1: Oh, I was going to cover Toby, Yeah, Toby's experience. Um, you know, Toby went into a steep decline. Um, I don't know if I got to tell the story, but I'll tell it briefly just for those who may not have, have, have caught it. Toby and I were um, ordered to have no contact with one another. And he was immediately transferred. I mean, they cut him orders for Japan at light speed. And PCS, he was gone. Um, PCS is military speed for permanent change of station, is when you get transferred. And they transferred him to a base in Japan and we were barred from having any contact with one another under strict terms. I mean, no, no telephone calls, no speaking in person, no passing notes, no communication to third parties and the like. So, um, I, uh, when we left devil's den, we were, we were changed people. We, we genuinely were. I mean, I, I explained that, um, I feel like we went there as two, maybe late teenage kids. I was 22. Toby was 23. When we left there, we left there as adults. Um, This is such a, you know, June 11, 1977 was such a huge milestone of a day in my life. I mean, uh, it's it's on par with the birth of our children. It's, I tend to measure my life in terms of pre-1977 and post-1977. Sorry, kids. <laughs> but it, it was just a big event. But, right. you know, as I said, ET has control over our emotions, our thoughts. And um, while, this, while Toby had been my very best friend in the world, I suddenly, after this event, I wanted nothing to do with him. And I'm sure that that was influenced from ET. You know, we went, it was a six and a half hour drive from Devil's Den back to the air basin. And on the way, we had, we didn't talk, but we were both in a lot of pain, but uh, he spent most of the time curled up in a theater position on the big bench seat of my own Chevy. And, uh, but we made a pact that we would not tell anyone that we saw a UFO. Uh, but I mean, we were ethical with People even back then, I mean, I uh, so we can't lie. He's like, yeah, we can't tell a lie, but you know, what we can do, we can just admit what happened to us and tell the truth and say, look, we were sick as dogs. We went to bed. We woke up uh, sicker and uh, came home because we left everything there at the campsite our tent, his cooler, his backpack with his address in it to the air base, which is how they tracked us down, I'm sure. Uh, we were just glad to get out of there with our, with our lives. Uh, but I was determined to tell him goodbye. I mean, I worked with this guy and I felt like I owed him that. So, um, we both lived in NCO family housing on the base. And, um, on the way home from the uh, grocery store, I said, my wife stop by Toby's. I want to run in and just tell him goodbye. And she was like, Oh, Terry, don't mess with these OSI people. You know, you, and I'm like, look, I'll be in there four minutes, I'll be out, no worries. So, um, she wasn't crazy about the idea, but she stopped and I ran up to Toby's front door, a door I'd walked, I'd walked through that threshold a hundred times. And, uh, I knocked on the door and, uh, opened it as I always did. And I just yelled, you know, announced myself, hey guys, it's, it's me, um, I knew they were home. There was a, a truck outside and they were packing for their move. Then Toby's wife walked past me with a, a lamp, or a box in her hands. I think it was a lamp. Anyway, she walked past me and she gave me a hard look and said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, you know, look, I'm not here t- for a confrontation. I just want to say goodbye to my friend, my friends. And she kept walking, but Toby... Who had been in the bedroom around the corner from the hallway had heard our exchange. I think and he came walking out, and Toby, uh, Simmons was always meticulous about his about his appearance, I mean, where I tended to be kind of a slob, he was he was always the one who had the you know we wore whites, you know, hospital whites, Sydney of rank on a collar and a name tag. And he was always the one that had his shoes polished and firstly uh, start, uh, uh, uniform. And, uh, his hair was always within rags and he was just meticulous about his experience. And I, I walked around the corner and I mean, I cut him some slack cause I knew he was moving, but I was shocked in that, uh, he looked terrible. I mean, he looked like, uh, uh he didn't look like the like filthy that I knew, he, uh,
0: Hey Terry, uh, your your sound is fading away lately. Oh, I'm sorry, is that better? Yes, better. Okay. Oh, okay.
1: Um he uh, he looked terrible. Uh you know, his his t shirt was dirty, he was wearing dirty jeans. Uh, he uh he looked awful and uh I uh, he walked up to me and Toby was a short guy. I'm I'm like six one and he's about four inches shorter than I am. And I my I wanted to embrace the guy. I thought that that would have been appropriate, you know. Um, we had worked together, associated together, were friends, but I didn't do that. I don't know why I didn't do. I didn't do that. Uh, when I saw him, I felt this. I felt just anxiety. And uh, I said, you know, I understand you're going to Japan. I just wanted to say goodbye and wish you well. And I held out my hand and he held out his hand and we had trouble making connection and we made this inelegant finally, finally made contact and we shook hands. And um, he looked up at me and he said, with a question, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it did happen. You're not, you're not losing your mind. And uh, he said, yeah, but why us? And I broke eye contact and looked down at my shoes, and I said, man, I don't. And I used an expletive. I said, man, I don't have a clue. And with that, I, uh, I felt panic. And I turned and I ran out of the house, back into my car. And uh, it wasn't what I was expecting. I wanted to see him so badly because I thought it would bring me some kind of closure. Uh, but it, it didn't, it, it was just anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I found out, uh, he, he was gone in a matter of weeks. He was gone. I know I drove by the house. There was a new family in it. So, uh, he was in Japan and, um, a couple of years later, I'm out of the air force. And, uh, got a call. My wife got a call actually from Toby's wife. Uh, she had re- re- divorced from Toby. And, uh, while they were in Japan, they separated and divorced. She got custody of the, of the two little children and, uh, she moved back stateside and she called my wife and said, uh, I'm remarried, uh, cause they were very close. And she said, my new husband drives a semi and, uh, we have a load that's going through Detroit on our way to northeast uh, New York somewhere I think I think Niagara uh doesn't matter anyway, she said, I "Wonder if we could stop by and visit and have dinner and catch up and My wife was like, "God, yes, we'd love to see you, you know, bring pictures of the kids and uh let's let's talk about old times so she did, and this was my opportunity to learn about what happened to Toby, and she told me that Toby's Ran into a quick demise. Uh, he just went downhill, spiraled downhill, um, with alcohol problems. And you know, like me, he wasn't a daytime drinker or a social drinker. He was a sol- he was a solo drinker at night uh, because he claimed that he could not sleep. Um, but uh, his his choice of sedation was vodka. And uh, and you know, he had never been a drinker, never. Um, but, you know, he picked up the habit quickly after this, um, I had tried to contact Toby, um, uh, some years later, I separated from the military in 1979, uh, finished my degree with the law school. And, uh, when I was practicing law, uh, as a young lawyer, I was working for a firm and, uh, and I got, uh, we had a case that involved the FBI. And I got to know an FBI agent pretty well. Now I got a lot—I got not a lot, but I got some hate mail about this because I'm disparaging an FBI agent, and I don't want to—I don't want to do that. I mean, I'm a former prosecutor. I worked closely with uh, law enforcement. I respect law enforcement. Every FBI special agent I've ever known has been a stand-up person. So I—I I certainly don't mean to tar everyone with the same brush. But in the interest of the truth, I, I need to tell this story. So I'll call him Frank. I contacted my friend Frank. We were in kind of the habit of every, maybe every other weekend or so, Friday night after work, we'd meet at a local bar and have a couple drinks and, you know, um, kind of discuss the week and, uh, you know, just talk about stuff. And uh, I decided I, like, because I had tried to get, I tried to contact Toby. I had a phone number for his dad in Flint, Michigan. And I called him probably 1982, And um, his dad answered the phone. I could tell it was an elderly gentleman and he knew who I was. And I said, yeah, I'm just trying to reach my old friend. Um, and he uh, he said, well, Toby doesn't actually stay here, but I see him a lot. And I can't, you know, say for sure, but I got the vibe maybe that he was homeless. Um just from a sad tone in dad's voice, but, but he was very kind. And I said, if I leave my number, would you have Toby call me, please? And he said, yes, I will. So he took my number and I never heard from him, which was disappointing. So it was around the Christmas season, um, a couple years later. And uh, I asked my FBI friend, I said, hey, you know, can you help me find my, a guy I was in the military with? and he said uh, sure as long as he's not a fugitive now that doesn't sound funny on his face but that's that's dry fbi humor because that's <laughs> what they do is they find fugitives you know so so i had to laugh just so he'd know that it didn't go over my head uh but he said yeah sure i'll, I'll i he says now understand this is a favor between friends i can't open an investigation or do anything like that but he says if you write down for me everything you can think about the guy, if you got photographs, uh, you know, where he lived, where he went to school, anything, any facts, all the facts that you know about the guy, put them on a piece of paper for me and I'll give it a shot. He said, I can't promise you anything, but I promise I'll do my best. And I said, Oh man, that's awesome. Thank you so much. So I did that and I put it in the sealed envelope, dropped it off at his office. And, um, a week later, uh, he called me up and, uh, maybe two weeks. He said, yeah, I got some info on your buddy. You want to meet me uh, Friday uh, and we'll go over it. And I'm like, God, yes, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, so I met him uh, at, the, at the bar I was there. I got there before he did and he was late and he came in and I could tell when he walked in the door, he had this somber look on his face and he came over and, um, uh, he ordered a beer and we're sitting there, uh, chatting. And I said, so you got some info and Toby for me? He said, I do. And he said, you know, I've got some bad news for you. And he says, but Tony, you got to understand that these things happen. You know, you and I both know, you know, that, uh, the reality is that, uh, all of us have an expiration date and we don't know what that is. And, uh, I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, your friend was killed. Your friend was killed in an automobile accident. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh my God, when? And um, he gave me a date. I don't remember the date. I, I don't remember the date off the top of my head. Uh, but it was a couple of years prior to our conversation. And he explained that it was. And I said, how? He's a young man. How, how can he be dead? And he said, it was a uh, hit and run accident, uh, pardon me, a, um, a head on accident. On, um, on a ramp off of uh, I-94 um, going out of Flint. So I'm obviously just dumbfounded, and he says, you know, Terry, look, um, I am so sorry for your friend, but you and I both know, you know, we never know We never know the date that we're going to check out. And he said, I hope this helps you and hopes you can help you process this. And I thanked him, and... Uh, had a, had another beer and decided that you know what I'm I'm going to have to live with this because this is this is the reality. Well, in 2017, uh, when I'm writing Incident at Devil's Den, I decided to uh, research it and um, maybe find out where he was he's buried and, and I thought maybe I could you know visit his gravesite maybe. So I got on the internet, which I didn't have available. In, in 1982 and I got on the internet and uh, did some research and found out the date of his death was September 4th 2007 so uh, I'm left with the conclusion this guy lied to me I, mean, I, I don't know why he lied to me and again my apologies mm-hmm. to law enforcement I don't mean to disparage anyone but that's the conclusion I reached is that wow um, And I think that somewhere, you know, within government circles, there's a file, maybe with the OSI, because I told him about our intervention. I told him we had some intervention with the OSI who was investigating both of us. And I didn't tell him about the UFO. I told him that we were being investigated for criminal trespass, which was partly true because um, years later, I would find out that 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 piece of high ground, that plateau that we went to, was actually uh, owned by the federal government and uh, managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, it had been carved out of Devil's Den State Park and deeded to uh, the federal government. So that's why that chain across the road was, it really was restricted federal land. Um, but I think that there's a file somewhere that says, you know, these two guys are not to get their heads together. Because, you know, if two people were to come out with the shared story, um, it would be much more credible. Right. You know, the, the, That's the terrible. Well, you know what? It is it is terrible. But you know what? It's not unusual. Um, in all these emails I got, I got emails from so many people who told me that they had a shared event. And then afterward, they drifted away. You know, friendships dissolved. If, uh, let's say, the members, four members of a family have an event and they see something, you know, the family may stay together, but no one will ever talk about it. It's off the table. And I mean, you know, 20 years later, somebody brings it up at Thanksgiving dinner. It's a very awkward moment for everybody. And, you know, if, if there's a great book by Ray Fowler um, called the Alabash abductions, I believe is the name of the title of it. It's a great book. I read it and it details uh, four people we were in Allagash off the Allagash river. there's a lake and um, these four guys were best of friends. It was uh, Jack and James Wiener um, who were twins and you know how close twins are. And then there was a guy named Rack R-A-K was his last name and a guy named um, I forget his last name, <laughs> Foltz F-O-L-T-Z. So the four of them who were just tight, like, like good friends, went to um, went on this fishing trip. And uh, I'll be real brief, but for those who don't know the story, they had planned to fish at night. So what they did was, because it's a big lake, uh, they gathered a lot of wood, and they built this humongous bonfire. And because they were going to be in the lake in the middle of the night at the dark, that acted like a lighthouse. That would help them as a beacon to find their way back to their campsite. So they built this enormous fire and they're out in the middle of a lake in this aluminum canoe. And, uh, they saw what at first they thought to be the moon. And then they realized, no, that's not the moon. And then it transitioned into this big, bright light, white light. And, uh, they described how it lit up the inside of that, that aluminum canoe like crazy. And, um, I don't remember which one. One of the guys is staring at it and he's screaming, get us out of here, get us out of here. And the rest are paddling like crazy. And then boom, they're gone. Um, You know, and they lose time. The next conscious thought that they have is they're in the canoe uh, and they're paddling towards the shore, towards the bonfire. Now this bonfire was enormous and was meant to burn all night long. And it's... Burned almost down to embers, um, but it's thankfully it's bright enough that they can see their way back uh, and they get back to the campsite. And you know, rather than debriefing and talking about, man, did you experience what I experienced? And what was that thing? You know, the human uh, responses that you know, four people going through the same traumatic relationship would would want to debrief, would want to, you know, that's that's how people. Uh, validate their experience, uh, but they didn't They didn't talk about it. Uh, they went in their, in their uh, tents and went to bed and got up the next morning, packed and went home, and never spoke about it again. Until a few years later, when uh, I think it was Jim, uh, you know, started having these horrific nightmares that really, you know, like mine, became, you know, uh, hard to live with. And he contacted his twin, and he said, man, I'm having these weird nightmares. And to his surprise, he said, man, so am I. And they started swapping nightmares. They were sharing the exact same nightmares. And they saw a psychiatrist uh, who spoke with them and recognized something strange is going on here, and they eventually got with a certified Therapist who used hypnosis, uh, I think he was that, I think he was a psychiatrist, in an MD. Um, and that's how the story came out, is under hypnosis, these guys were able to remember the trauma that happened. And then, uh, of course, Mr. Foltz and Mr. Wack joined in, and it became a big story. Uh, it happened, I, I want to say 1974, uh, three years before, before my abduction, and uh, it, it made national news. They were on, you know, Good Morning America. They were on all the talk shows. They all passed a series of, um, of lie detector tests, polygraphs, and uh, uh, just very credible people. Ray Fowler wrote this incredible book. If anyone's not read it, I encourage you to read it because it explains the dynamics of, um, of what happens uh, with people in an alien abduction
0: yeah, I've heard that story before. You know, it seems like there's something intrinsic about maybe what they do that makes people who have been abducted together feel some sort of black about discussing it with each other.
1: Well, I I can tell you my emotion. Um, and that was any time I brought this up or spoke about it, I felt like I was revealing some kind of dark family secret. And I felt guilty. I felt genuine guilt that... Um, yeah that that uh, i was doing something that was uh, a betrayal and uh for that reason i i was always reticent to to talk about it you know my my wife and i spoke about it but uh you know we've been married 40, 47 years and uh you know we have two adult children 40 and 36 and um, we never we never shared this with our kids. I mean, all they knew is that, yeah, dad would have screaming nightmares once or twice a year. But uh, we never shared the, uh, the story with them because we didn't didn't feel like they needed to, uh, to have to put up with that anxiety. And when I published the. Go ahead.
0: When you're having this feeling of betrayal, who do you feel you're betraying?
1: You know, I, I don't feel, I can't identify, uh, who I know. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm betraying, uh, a person, but I'm betraying the, uh, the, uh, the incident or something. I don't know, but it's not tied to a person, a being, uh, an ET. It's just the emotion of guilt. Uh, so you know, that's, that also makes me believe that this is this is um, non-human influence in my life. Uh, sure. Because I, I, I can't say who, you know, if I could identify who, you know, if I if in my mind's eye, I know while I'm betraying, you know, instructions from Dr. Buck, let's say just for example's sake, then I could work through that and maybe process it. And, and um, but, but I can't. But I, I will say this that um, it was very difficult for me to write this book because of dealing with that guilt. And um, that's like the whole last chapter of Incident at Devil's Den, I, I wanted to exclude from the book. Uh, my editor said, no, you gotta leave it because it, it ties everything together. And, and it does, he's right. Um, but that was the most difficult part for me to write. And after writing it, I felt, uh, I felt better. And then I started going to conferences and started speaking. And uh, um, that was very therapeutic for me to get in front of a uh, hundred people and, and tell my story candidly. And, uh, you know, and then afterward uh, a line of people form and people would tell me, you know, gosh, boy, that rings a bell. You know what? I, I, I think I may have been, I think I may have had an experience myself. Uh, there's something I had this one kid, uh, uh college kid, I won't mention what university, because he had a sweatshirt on, but he stood in line patiently for 20 minutes to speak with me, and uh, we shook hands, and he said, God, I really enjoyed your, your talk today. I said, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And he says, what I want to know is, how can I get them to take me? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he he said, no, I'd I'd like to have this experience. Son, have you not been listening to what I've been saying for the past hour and 45 minutes? You want to experience that, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait.
0: Yeah, I've heard the same thing many times over the years. It might sound like a wonderful, phenomenal experience for people to have, but many times the after effects especially are not. And people just don't understand what they're wishing for.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, and I too, I think that that's youthful uh, enthusiasm. Uh, but you know what, if I had the option of taking this back and none of it ever happening happening to me, I wouldn't even want to go that route either. Uh, you know, that's why I fought so hard during this hypnosis session with the OSI back in 1977. Uh, they wanted to take these memories from me. And uh, they wanted to wipe my mind clean. And I was determined that I own this stuff. These, I own these memories and I'm not letting them go. Um, and I'm glad I did that
0: uh,
1: in a lot of ways. I mean, you don't want to remember the ugly, but I mean, if you do, at least you know why you have the anxiety. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. I think it's part of who I am. It's part of the life that I've lived and uh, um, I think I remember it for a reason and I want to, I want to share it with people uh, because there are a lot of people out there struggling with their own experience thinking, thinking that. Uh,
0: are you still with me, Wendy? Yeah, I'm still here.
1: Okay. Um, there are a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, have had an experience and, and they, they don't know what happened to them. All they know is that they suffered a trauma. So yeah, that's, that's my point.
0: Yeah. yeah. We have a minute before we end. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share? You know, briefly, and I, I don't know how much time we have. I, I'm sorry. I, I
1: took off talking here and. Uh,
0: yeah, well, we and have went
1: off on this narrative.
0: Yeah, we have a, Twenty minutes or so left.
1: Good. I would like to touch on on um, on uh, one of the stories that these people shared to me I, I, with me. I, I said that in Devil's Den: The Reckoning, in my second book, I shared uh, thirty of these stories that I received from people, and um, the, I'll, I'll just share the one. I, I got a, a email from a seventy-six-year-old woman from Henderson, Nevada. Um, I got an email from her. She said that she was in 1968, she was living in Las Vegas, Nevada, and was married to a nephrologist, a kidney doctor who who, uh, worked for um, a a hospital there in in Las Vegas. And uh, she had uh, relatives in Reno. And once a month, they would make, uh, because her husband was an MD, you know, he worked 60, 70 hours a week. But they arranged to have a long weekend once a month, where the four of them could get, the two of them could get together, make the trip to Reno, and uh, have a nice weekend together, and talk and catch up and compensate for the lost time during the rest of the month. So, and they made this trip; they would uh, stop at about the halfway point. Um, I think it's, I think she said it's 240 mile trip, and they would stop at this little town, uh, Tunipa which marks about the halfway point. And they would eat at this um eat and get gas at this uh, little like truck stop restaurant place called uh the stagecoach, which she says is still there. And uh, then continue their trip. Like I say this is nineteen sixty eight so it's it's all different now. There's I think it's ninety five, there's new highway, uh new roadway and it's it's of course much built up. But um On this March, 1968 trip, um, which they normally made in the afternoon uh, into the early evening to get, avoid rush hour traffic. But this night in particular for their trip, he got stuck at the hospital till 6 p.m. So they got a late start. So when they reached their halfway point in Tunapa, um, it was was dark and uh, they were tired and they pulled in, they got gas and uh, they had a nice meal. They didn't have anything to drink, no alcohol. And um, um I, I wanted to speak with this woman. Uh she, you know, she was very articulate in her emails, but I wanted I wanted to have uh, and she emailed me and said, Look, I'm I'm not real comfortable on the internet. She said, Can we just do this with a phone call? I'm like, Oh my god, yes, I was gonna ask you anyway. So we had a hour and a half long telephone conversation. Uh and I, you know, I I wanted to kind of judge her cognitive ability, not that I'm, you know, qualified to do that, but
0: uh, uh,
1: she didn't seem demented or, or suffering the effects of age. Uh, she seemed rock solid to me. Uh, she was articulate, uh, unequivocal and uh, told her story. And she just kind of, uh pardon the word, she just kind of puked the story out like she it had been bottled up and she needed to get it out of her system. And she told me she hadn't, her, her husband passed away in 1983. And she said, you know, I haven't shared this story with anyone, you're the first person. And uh, I told her I was grateful for that. So she's rock solid. And she tells me that she and her husband left the uh, Tunapa after they got their gas and they headed toward Reno. 10 miles outside of Reno, they saw what looked like, uh, what looked like, what was a Christmas store. And she said that, you know, 1968, she was shocked. She'd never seen a a store devoted solely to the holiday before. And uh, she said it was a small building that sat back from the road. Now she remembers it as being a brick structure Uh, Her husband remembers it as being wooden, made out of like barn wood, rustic barn wood. So their memory differs on those two details. But with everything else, they were pretty much spot on. And she said that the place was just like the uh, just like the craft that I was on in 1977 was insanely lit. She said there was light pouring out of uh, the windows front bunch of pane windows that ran across the front of the store and there was a porch there and she said that the place was wrapped with christmas lights of all varieties uh you know twinkling non-twinkling multiple colors and they uh they both agreed that in green there was a um, the word christmas uh spelled out uh, uh in neon light above the store and they were both Dumbfounded because they made this trip, they'd made this trip, you know, four weeks prior, and this place wasn't there, they were sure. Uh, and because it was out of town and it was in the middle of nowhere, and it looked like it was open. And she said she asked her husband, pull over. And her husband wasn't already with it. He was pulling over. He pulled over to the shoulder of the road directly in front of this place. And they um, they just sat there mesmerized, and they're looking at this thing. And she said there were a few seconds where she felt like she was kind of like zoned out or out of it, but it only lasted a few seconds. And, uh, Cause I was curious, did you have missing time? And I remember on the phone, she laughed and said, well, how would one know? And I'm like, Well, you know, good point. Uh, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, she doesn't think so, but she doesn't know. But um, while they're stand, while they're on the shoulder of the road in the car, they're looking at this place, and they realize there are no other cars around. Then they realize there's no parking lot. It's just sand and sagebrush in front of this place. And she noticed that there was no, there's no, there's no entryway. There was no driveway, no way to enter the place. And she asked her husband, this is the only conversation she recalls. She asked her husband, she said, Paul, why would they build a, a store here but not have not built build it without an egress? Uh that doesn't make any sense, does it? And he said, No. And uh while they're looking at this place, they can see motion uh inside inside the building. They see shadows moving in the light. You never could see any anyone make out a, a the silhouette of an image of a person, but they could see some kind of motion going on. So they watched this for what she thought was maybe 10 minutes. And then they lost interest and they went, got back on the highway, went on their way uh, and drove to Reno. What was unusual, she said was even though it was later than usual, this was usually precious time for them to get caught up and share a conversation about, you know, how's your life going? Because they had so little time together, and she slept. She said it's the first and only time that she ever slept on uh, on any leg of the trip. And her husband woke her up as they hit Reno city limits, and they were both out of it. They both felt, you know, not themselves, like they had a mild case of flu or something. She said also it was unusual is they they had arranged to have a late check-in. They called beforehand, so they checked into the hotel. She can't recall what time it was, which is another key component of identifying missing time. Um, but when they got to the hotel, instead of, uh, you know, maybe going down to the bar and having a drink before they go to bed or, or unpacking, putting, hanging up their clothing, did none of that. They went straight to their room, you know, threw their stuff down and went, and went directly to bed. And uh, they slept. And they slept uh twelve hours. They slept they slept until their friends woke them up uh with a telephone call. Uh, so but you know they didn't talk about it that day. They didn't talk about it, they didn't debrief. Um but on the on the drive back, she said to her husband, You know, let's stop by. I want to see that crazy Christmas store. And he's like, Yeah, that's been on my mind. Let's do that. So they made the drive from Reno, headed back to Vegas and they st- 10 miles north of Tunapa, uh, they don't find it. It's not there. Uh, so they turn around. They drive back the opposite way. They're pretty sure they know exactly where they saw it. There is nothing there. And she says, well, this doesn't make sense because they just can't, can't understand. So they went to their, their place where they um, – um, no, they didn't stop. They didn't stop there because they, they didn't have time. They went straight home. Um, but during the week that followed, they didn't discuss it until she brought it up at dinner and said, You know, that Christmas store bugs me. And he says, Yeah, it bugs me too. And she says, You know, Saturday, if you can get the time, let's make the drive. We don't have to go all the way to Reno. Let's just make the drive up to Tunipa and we'll have a nice lunch at the stagecoach and find out where this Christmas store is because I know what I saw. And he's like, yeah, I agree. Let's do. Uh, so they did. That Saturday they got up and they, they made the drive to Tunapa. And um, they drove past Tunapa about 10 miles and looked if they were certain where the place was. And it was not there. And uh, they drove. And, and they it just they couldn't find it. It wasn't there. So they went to the stagecoach to have their lunch. And um, they asked their hostess. Uh, she said, she asked the hostess, well, when did they build the Christmas store in town? And the hostess looks at her like, are you crazy? <laughs> because I don't know what you're talking about. And she says, well, yeah, my husband and I, we were here uh, last week. And on our drive uh, to Reno, we saw a Christmas store. And she says, I don't know of anything about that. But she said the president of Tunipus Chamber of Commerce happens to own the stagecoach. And he's here today. And uh, she called him Mr. Yang. And she said, uh, I'll have Mr. Yang come over and talk to you because if there's any new business that's here, he's going to know about it. So Mr. Yang comes over to their table and is very courteous and says, may I join you? And they said, sure, of course, please do. So they told him their story. Uh, and he looked at them, you know, with this concerned look and said, you know, I, I, we haven't had a new, a new commercial business in town or anywhere near us since the florist opened eight months ago. And he said, I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't know of any store or anything that would match that description. And um, he said, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not, I'm not calling you liars, of course, but uh, I can just tell you that I'm, I'm unaware of anything like that. And they found that to be very really disturbing. Um, she said that, you know, that she had nightmares about the store. And they weren't frightening nightmares. But what they were is they were they were. They were uh, dreams of being back on the road, on the side of the road, and witnessing this place, and just something about seeing it was, they found very disturbing, and um, she had those for years and still has them. She said her husband would have them, too, but refused to talk about them, and, uh, you know, she brought the subject up a couple times, and her husband, Paul, said, you know, look, we got bigger things to worry about. Uh And 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 did not talk about it.
0: That's amazing. That's mind-boggling. How do you explain away two people seeing a store, both at the same time in the middle of nowhere that doesn't exist?
1: It's. I thought it was an amazing story. And I mean, seventy-six-year-old people. um, Why why would a seventy-six-year-old person make up a fairy tale? It it, it doesn't make sense to me. And um, I asked her as much. I said, you know, I, I. You sound truthful to me, but people are going to ask me, how do I know you're telling me the truth? And she says, well, I can't, I can't prove to you that I'm telling the truth. I I have no way of doing that. But, uh, she said, I promise you, I wouldn't lie to you. She says, you know, the only other witness to this event was my husband, Paul, and and he's not here anymore. And she says in in my core, in my soul, I know that this is important to share with people that people need to hear this. Uh, what does it mean? She says, I don't have the slightest idea of what it means, but, uh, but I I think it's important that my story be told. And she says, so please tell my story for me. I I promised her I would. And uh, I asked her, I said, you know, Olivia, do you think that what you saw might've been a spaceship? And she laughs. And then there's a pause. And she says, yeah, I do. I think I saw something that was not from this world. And she pointed out that she and her husband, Paul, who were, you know they were smart people. I mean, you know she was college educated, he was an MD. Um, they were young. there nothing wrong with their vision. They weren't under the influence of alcohol. Uh, um, you know they were they were uh, what I call competent observers. And uh, she she but she pointed out that it's odd that she would see the building as brick and her husband would see it as being made out of wood. Uh, everything else was the same, but they differed on those, t- on those two. Uh, but that's a pretty significant difference. So um, she thinks that that points to the fact that what they were seeing was a projection somehow. They they weren't seeing reality. Um, and she says, yeah, she says she thinks what they saw
0: was, uh, was a UFO of some kind. Wow. And what... What does you know an elderly person in their 70s have to gain? Nothing.
1: You know, I waited until I was uh, 65 to tell my story. Uh, you know, part of the reason is that you know I, I was in the legal community, I worked in government, and I knew that there would be a backlash, and there was. I mean, I had I had people that had been friends with mine for you know for decades. Uh, I had a few call me up and, and say, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? Are you trying to break into the science fiction genre or something? And I would say, no, this this really happened to me. And they're like, well, you know, you're going to lose your standing. You know, you have a good reputation in the legal community. and You just trashed it. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. So be it. And, your truth um, is your truth. Friendship's dissolved. But you know what? I I can't tell you how grateful I am. Not only have I learned to live with what happened to me, um, but I learned that other people have experienced this too. I'm not alone. And the friends that I've made in the media and in in the UFO community, and there is, there's a UFO culture in this country, um, and it's bigger than anyone thinks. And, you know, I go to conferences and I speak to like minded people, um, credible, you know, legitimate people. I'm not talking about. um, Uh, You know, the tinfoil hats, you know, this is my hobby kind of people. I'm talking about uh, um, reputable witnesses uh, that lead an otherwise normal life. Um, So, and I've made made all those friendships. Uh, You know, I go to the conferences, I hear the applause, I get the handshakes, I get the hugs, and I get to talk to these people. And it's a privilege to me. Uh, to be a member of that community and be able to come forth and, you know, and, and tell other people's stories now. I mean, I kind of inadvertently turned into a UFO researcher. That was never my intention, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that, you know, helping others tell their stories now is because is, uh, I've told mine, uh, telling right. other people's stories is now my mission.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Um, I'd like to ask you before we go, having been, in the military and worked for the government and, you know, having your own experiences with this. Do you have any hope for this 180 days producing anything? Um, what's your take on that?
1: Two things, two things. Number one, there was a uh, December 8th uh, story in the Jerusalem Post. Um, and then it made, made oh, Forbes magazine, it made the news outlets here um, mm-hmm. about uh, Dr. Haim Ashed uh H A I M spelled E S H E D. Uh if you Google that name, you'll find the stories. Uh Haim Ashed was the um uh, he was in charge of space stuff for the for the nation of Israel. And uh he is I've, I've spoke with some friends in Tel Aviv and, and they tell me that Haim Ashed uh you know did thirty years in the military, won three prestigious awards uh, from the government uh they went on to teach at university for 10 years now he's kind of up in years but he is i mean mentally cognitively he's rock solid and he came out with a story and said that look you know the united states and israel have had contact with what he called the galactic federation now i'm not a mm-hmm. science fiction fan whatsoever uh, i thought that was kind of a poor choice of words because people tie that to maybe star trek or some kind of uh but uh, they said that this guy is like the Buzz Aldrin of Israel. People like the guy, respect him. And uh, and he said that they, we've been in contact and that the United States president, Donald Trump, had planned to make a public disclosure that, you know, we're in contact with E.T. And according to Haimashed, E.T. contacted them or the president, uh, communicated to us that, no, you can't do that. You can't disclose right now. And um, there's a curious choice of words. It's five words in shed story. And he says, um, until, people, until people understand uh, space and spaceships. Now, that's an odd string of words, and I don't know what his point was. I don't know what there is to understand about space and spaceships that can't be explained. um, But it raises more questions than it answers. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, his story dovetails very nicely with Paul Hellyer's story, the former defense minister of Canada.
0: Exactly.
1: And the second component to all this is the CNN story about the 180 day date for disclosure. Really, really. raised my curiosity, like through the roof, uh, maybe a little bit of anxiety. My question is, what is it that ties COVID? Because it's 180 days from something to do with COVID, the vaccine or something, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was some, some bill. Uh, it was sort of a ride along within that bill, I believe.
1: Now, I read that bill. I got a copy of it. And uh, at least the public disclosure part. And uh, you can do on- online if you if you know where to go. You can have you can access the uh, the bill in its in its because uh, it goes through several drafts. You can go back and find the drafts. And there's some interesting drafts. But of course we don't know the intelligence part that that's non-disclosed. We don't know the secret stuff. Um, but it's interesting because. What raises my—I don't want to scare anybody. I'm not trying to do that. But um, what is the nexus? What ties uh, COVID-19 to a date of uh, disclosure? And why? Why on earth would a 180-day delay be necessary to um, before that they'll they'll tell us the truth? Why do we have to go 180 days? Mm-hmm. Um, that just that just raises all kinds of flags in my mind. Meaning that I, I assume that they're waiting for some event to happen over the passage of time that will make this crystal clear to people that it's reality. Whenever it is finally disclosed, so yeah, I just hope that that's all good news.
0: Yes, yes, I know. The more the more we find out, the more questions it brings this field
1: I agree lots of questions
0: thank you so much Terry it's been amazing speaking to you again um, before, before, we, before we head out you want to give the names uh, of, of, of your books and any social media or sites that you have to where our guests can follow up on you
1: Oh, sure. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, My books are Incident at Devil's Den and Devil's Den, The Reckoning, which uh, the Kindle version is number one in new releases. So I'm very happy for that status this morning. Um, They're both on Amazon only. um, And uh, in Kindle version and in print, print has the photographs in it. Uh, I have an audio book also for Incident at Devil's Den. It's about eight hours long. I did it in my own voice. I don't have a, I don't have the greatest. Uh, uh, I'm not a voice artist, but uh, I wanted to tell the story in my own words, and um, so I made an audio book for that. I have a website that has some interesting images, including a drawing of the of the craft that we saw, uh, and some photographs of my X-rays where they found the things in my leg, and that's at Terry Lovelace. Com. Uh, I also have uh, Facebook pages at under Terry Lovelace um, but there are more Terry Lovelaces than I thought uh, but I also have a page, pardon me, a Facebook page at Incident at Devil's Den and um, you, you can join me there or if you want to email me if you've got a question, I return all my emails um, and you can My personal email is fine, terrylovelace at yahoo.com. And I'm happy to answer any
0: questions you have. So please do. Thank you so much, Terry. It's been an honor speaking with you. And maybe at the end of this 180 days, we'll we'll catch up and see what that brings to the table.
1: Oh, God, let's do because I think we're going to have plenty to talk about.
0: Yes. Well, thank you everyone for listening and be sure to keep up with the show at unexplainabletruths.com where you can listen to all episodes and get links to the podcast apps and social media that we're on. Until next time, everyone, take care.